This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. And uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us as we start the month of April. The White House announced recently a new trade agreement with South Korea. It is the first such bilateral deal announced by the Trump administration, and it comes at a time when relations with all nations in Asia are being watched closely. The deal itself looks to address issues surrounding the auto industry as well as steel and aluminum. But questions are being brought forward as to how much impact these changes in this new deal will really have. We ask those questions and more of Matt Gold, who is an adjunct professor of law at Fordham University. He's also a former deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for North America. Michael Gadbaugh is a distinguished senior fellow at Georgetown University's Institute for uh, International Economic Law, as well as having spent time as an attorney in the U.S. Treasury and Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. And also joining us is Marina Whitman, who's a professor of business administration and public policy at the University of Michigan. Matt, Michael, Marina, all great to have you with us today. Thank you very much for your time. Great to, nice be, to be here. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Matt, your reaction to, uh, to this uh, reporting about this deal between the U.S. and South Korea? Uh, well, the deal between the U.S. and South Korea reflects a, a, a very small, very, very small number of uh, minor outcomes. Uh, the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement is a good agreement. Um, very, very few changes to it were made. Um, I think if you're looking at it from the point of view of Donald Trump uh, and his promises to change the trade deficit between the U.S. and South Korea through this renegotiation, uh, it's a complete failure. Um, there are a couple of very small outcomes that won't affect the uh, uh, trade deficit between the U.S. and South Korea in any meaningful way. Um, but this is not an accomplishment that in any way suggests that uh, Trump's approach to South Korea was of any value at all. Michael, your reaction? Well, I think uh, President Trump was elected to focus uh, very much on trade and to bring some relief to a lot of communities that were affected by changes in trade, but also by uh, other developments like technology and the financial crisis. Uh, And this action is the first time he's actually uh, reached an agreement. And so a lot of people, I think, are breathing a sigh of relief that we've actually uh, gone down the route of negotiating and coming to a conclusion rather than going into a either a trade war or backing out of pre-existing agreements. Uh, I think we have to wait and see how this actually plays out. Uh, there's a lot of talk that uh, uh, car makers won't be able to fill their quota, but right. the, the amount of cars that they can uh, ship to Korea is, is now doubled. Uh, and uh, the question is whether this will energize them. I think also the agreement on currency manipulation, which is a side deal and um, – uh, was actually uh, 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 reminiscent of the deal that was uh, negotiated as a side deal to the TPP, uh, is an important contribution to the toolkit to deal with things like uh, currency manipulation. Marina, what was your reaction to this deal when it was announced? 
Well, it was sort of good news and bad news. On the one hand, um, I think bilateral agreements are always um, inferior to uh, multilateral or lateral or plurilateral agreements, which Mr. Trump has uh, said that he does not like. On the other hand, uh, as was just mentioned, having an agreement is considerably better than the kind of unilateral declarations of protection of one kind or another that has already led to a certain amount of tit-for-tat um, increases in <clears throat> in tariffs. So um, it could be better, but it could be worse. And uh, there's at least uh, a greater inclination toward uh, seeing these things as uh, not simply unilateral declarations, which are the worst kind of uh, trade actions. Well, uh, Michael, you brought up the the issue of currency manipulation, and that's obviously something that has been d- discussed quite a bit, uh, more specifically surrounding China. A- and South Korea, really, it hadn't been a, a talking point, to my knowledge specifically. Why has it popped up now in, in this specific concern, in your mind? Well, I think Korea is on the list of countries about which there have been concern uh, concerns regarding currency manipulation. So I don't think it's fair to say that they were uh, completely off the radar okay. in that respect. Uh, and I think it's uh, it was important for the administration to do something about currency manipulation, uh, because as you said, this was uh, associated with uh, the China surge, the China shock in the uh, early years of this century. Uh, and that cost a lot of jobs, by some estimates, somewhere between a million and 2.4 million jobs in the United States. So big problem. And I think the administration uh, properly said we've got to deal with this. And I think it also highlights the fact that there's more than just trade going on here. There are problems in the monetary system. There are right. problems in financial regulation, all of which have had an effect of holding trade responsible for things that actually uh, need to be fixed in other domains. Matt, how important is, is that piece of, uh, of that in your mind? It, it's important. I, you know, I agree with everything that's been said so far. It is important. It's 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 nothing like what Donald Trump promised here when yep. he went off to do this uh, South Korea thing. But, you know, the United States has wanted to have currency manipulation provisions in free trade agreements. Uh, for quite some time, and we we tried very hard to get one in the TPP. We couldn't, but we were negotiating with 11 other countries. Now that we're back into a bilateral negotiation, we really want to put one in there just to establish a precedent, precedent for future free trade agreements. So it's certainly a nice thing. It won't really have any immediate impact on U.S.-South Korea trade or the U.S. trade deficit with South Korea, but it, it certainly one of those small things you really wanted to have in there. And, and I guess to a degree it, it is, with with this piece of it involved with South Korea, it may potentially, and we don't know until we see what happens further down the road, it may potentially set up uh, a potential conversation about c- currency manipulation with the Chinese. Could it not, Matt? 
Yes, I mean we've we've been having a current currency manipulation with the Chinese for quite some time, right. so that doesn't need to be set up. But, okay. but if we can establish a precedent that we will not enter into any free any free trade agreements with any country ever again that doesn't have such a provision, this takes us a step in that direction. This isn't binding uh, in the agreement, so it's not fully in the agreement. It's more of a side agreement, but it takes us in a step in the direction we've wanted to go in in under the last two administrations as well. We are joined uh, on the phone by Matt Gold of uh, Fordham University, Michael Gadbal of uh, Georgetown University, and Marina Whitman of the University of Michigan. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't catch your phone, you're more than welcome to send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Marina, we've talked ab- about the, the differences between bilateral and, and multilateral trade agreements in the past, but uh, from your perspective, the differences between the two, why is it in your mind that it is so much more beneficial uh, for the U.S. to look at multilateral deals moving forward rather than potentially doing a bilateral deal? Well, I think it is mainly because uh, bilateral deals inevitably uh, violate the original principle principle under the GATT, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, that countries, that that all trade liberalization should be non-discriminatory. Right. And, of course, by definition, a bilateral deal is discriminatory. Okay, that's kind of at the level of international rule of law, if you want. At a practical level, the trouble is that in liberalizing trade with one particular country, one is likely to distort the trade relationships with other countries. If we bilaterally agree to uh, uh, tariff reductions on certain products with Korea, then that means that other countries that also export those same products to us will be at a disadvantage relative to Korea for reasons which have nothing to do with them, but simply with we've made this bilateral deal with Korea. And Matt, part of this is also the the auto industry, and, and that uh, is something which I, I think we have talked about on, in various shows in the past. And the difference between the numbers of vehicles that are coming to the U.S. from South Korea compared to the number of vehicles that are going or are being sold in South Korea from the U.S., it, it feels like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like that the want of the South Korean people to have American vehicles maybe is not as high as the want of some Americans to have South Korean vehicles here in the U.S. And that, and that certainly is indicated by the fact that the number of vehicles, that U.S. vehicles that South Korea now lets in, that maximum, I gather, is not in fact reached which means that it is hardly a binding constraint, and that yes. the constraint at the moment seems to be the demand of the Korean peoples for American cars. Now, of course, to be fair, there are a variety of subtler ways in which Korea could discourage uh, the purchase of American cars in uh, South Korea, and that's harder to identify and not as clear-cut as 
Matt Gold, your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, well, first of all, um, no U.S. manufacturer exports more than 11,000 cars uh, per year to, to South Korea right now. And we just uh, elevated the ceiling from 25,000 to 50,000, just to give you an idea of the significance or lack of significance of that. Keep in mind also, Dan, that, you know, the U.S. market has 330 million people. Right. Um, South Korea's market is a lot, a lot smaller. So you can't really compare the number of vehicles going in each direction. Right. Um, uh, in a balanced way. Also, you always have to remember that a tariff schedule has 8,000 different categories of goods, each of which have different duty rates. And it's important to look at, you know, um, all of trade, not just trade in one subheading. You know, right. uh, the, the president and um, his secretary of commerce love to cherry pick the automobile subheadings for all sorts of purposes in terms of comparing tariff rates and comparing volumes of imports and exports. But that that is simply not... Uh, that's a distorting, not a helpful statistic. So uh, then, okay, then let's let's shift over for for the issues of steel and aluminum, aluminum because we talked to you uh, recently about uh, the issues surrounding steel uh, coming into the U.S. Part of this agreement is surrounding steel and the current production levels that come into the U.S. from South Korea now would be set at about 70% of those old levels. But again, when we talked to you before, when we were talking about China, uh, the percentage of overall steel here in the U.S. was was very small. I'm guessing it's it's probably a similar case here where South Korea is concerned, Matt. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the big exporters of steel and aluminum to the United States are, are Mexico and Canada. Um, South Korea is in the, the top five or six countries list uh, for steel, as is China. Um, but, uh, you know, Trump jumped into the steel and aluminum tariffs, um, uh, uh, you know, over the advice of almost everyone except three people, as we've previously discussed. Um, it may have been an impulsive move because he was having a bit of an emotional meltdown over Hope Hicks leaving the White House. And he's proceeded since then to do several things that have reduced it, those tariffs in significance. One is to give exemptions to, to most of the countries uh, that are not China, that are major uh, steel and aluminum exporters to the United States. Another thing is that by giving those exemptions for reasons that are not national security reasons, he's really exposed himself to having all of the steel and aluminum quotas overturned by the U.S. Court of International Trade, which I predict will happen, um, not in an action that has just been started, but in an action that will probably be a separate action that will be started in a few months. Michael, what's your reaction? Can I say a word about this? Sure, please. Um, I think, first of all, on the question of uh, bilateral versus plurilateral or multilateral agreements, the question is really whether they move the system closer to a uh, an open market system in which people can fairly compete and there's a good argument that's been made that some uh, bilateral and plurilateral agreements actually do that it's so-called competitive liberalization model uh, on the other point of uh, unilateralism uh, as i indicated earlier a lot of communities that manufactured steel and automobiles were devastated uh, over the last 20 years um, and they attribute that uh, in large part to trade. Now, there's an argument that a lot of it was uh, technological change, but Trump was elected to uh, address those because a lot of those communities were in politically sensitive areas, right. and this is what he's doing. In this sense, he's not really unlike a lot of previous administrations. When I was in the government in the 70s, 
uh, the Democratic administration uh, of Jimmy Carter adopted uh, a whole steel trigger price mechanism to control the imports of steel designed by some pretty famous international economists. In the early 70s, the United States abandoned the gold standard and, and imposed unilaterally a 10% import surcharge uh, across the board, uh, but focused really in its implementation on Japan. And the result ultimately was a negotiated agreement that Professor Whitman knows because she was in the Council of Economic Advisors then that reset exchange rates. So I think we have to look at a broader context uh, about at unilateralism and recognize that the trading system uh, actually has accommodated uh, a certain amount of unilateralism. And the question is, does that move us closer to dealing with some of these underlying problems, which the WTO, unfortunately, hasn't really been able to get at? And so a lot of the arguments have been, well, we know there's a problem in steel overcapacity. We know there's a problem of China stealing our uh, intellectual property rights, but there's not a heck of a lot we can do about it. We just have to accept it. Right. And I think that's what Trump is basically saying. We've got to change. Not unlike when uh, Richard Nixon and John Connolly said, hey, we've got to change the uh, the international monetary system because the United States is uh, being seriously disadvantaged. Marina, would you like to follow up on that? No, I think that is basically right. And part of the issue, of course, is that what we call trade agreements generally involve a lot more than just trade as it's usually defined. Correct. Um, and the Nixon agreement that he referred to, which truly did upend uh, international uh, economic relationships in a whole lot of different ways, uh, was was it wasn't even agreement it that was a totally unilateral declaration which basically was designed to completely alter the so-called Bretton Woods exchange rate system where the dollar uh played a very specific role as the an international reserve currency and uh it was a variation of a gold standard where the dollar was tied to gold and everybody else was tied to the dollar. Um, and, of course, the uh, unilateral Nixon declaration essentially abrogated that arrangement and led ultimately to a, a change in a whole lot of exchange relationships. The uh, the um, surcharge on imports was simply a temporary mechanism, and it genuinely was temporary until um, the exchange rate relationships were vastly altered. Um, and that was unilateral. It was also inevitable because the United States had gotten to the point where if a number of countries actually exercised their right to demand gold from the United States, um, we would have had a big problem. I mean, it could, in principle, have exhausted our gold reserves. So, um, as in many cases, uh, this was a change which was certainly affected trade, but really wasn't 
uh, a trade action. And, of course, more and more things that show up in trade agreements are things which are not directly related to trade, whether they're financial or they relate to domestic regulation. And there was an effort, partially successful, to put a lot of these things in the TPP, which, of course, the United States initially initiated and uh, then backed away from. And now we'll see how that works out with the other 11 nations who say they are going to maintain it. But obviously, it will have much less impact than it would have uh, had the United States joined. We're joined uh, by Matt Gold, who's an adjunct uh, professor of law at Fordham University, Michael Gadbell, uh, distinguished senior fellow at Georgetown University, and Marina Whitman, uh, emerita professor at the University of Michigan. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Michael, you mentioned uh, the steel industry and, and the impact that has been seen uh, over the years uh, here in the United States and having uncles that live in the Pittsburgh area and saw this firsthand with them, uh, the impact that the changes really had. I guess the question for a lot of people is, can some of these changes through trade deals potentially impact what we would see with the steel industry here in the United States in the years to come? Well, I think that's a great question. And uh, I grew up just outside of Detroit, uh, I went to University of Michigan Law School. Uh, I, um, I have a lot of attachment to the Midwest, and I feel a lot of empathy for what a lot of those communities are going through. The problem is uh, that trade is only one tool. And if we look back to the 1980s, uh, where we went to war with Japan, in that case, uh, over uh, autos and steel and semiconductors, where I was intimately involved in the in the semiconductor cases, uh, where we brought dumping cases and we used them to get market access, um, uh, there are examples where trade has been one of a number of tools that were used to turn around the competitiveness of different industries and in that connection to help whole communities. Uh, but trade can't do it alone. Uh, um, uh, the question is whether we will uh, accompany these trade measures with a, an appropriate set of other adjustment mechanisms um, that will uh, help these communities address some of the underlying problems created by uh, the departure of a lot of manufacturing jobs, some to offshoring and some to technological change. Uh, but if we take the page out of the 80s, uh, trade was actually an instrument we used to mobilize an entire competitiveness agenda. Uh, in the case of the semiconductors, there were changes in tax, there were changes in, uh, in antitrust, there were a whole series of changes uh, that were stimulated in part by a concern about competitiveness uh, and uh, a focus on the trade issues, but these other measures actually brought uh, considerable help in dealing with the problems. And, right. of course, the, as we all know, that played into the information technology revolution of the 1990s and has been a considerable source of economic growth for the United States. So it's a, there's a good story 
to be told, uh, but it's not just a trade story. And, and Matt, I guess, um, for, go, go ahead from your perspective. Could I just add oh. one little footnote? Sure, Marina. And that is that when I was on the Council of Economic Advisors, um, Pete Peterson, who just died a few days ago, was had a job in the White House, and he wrote what was really the seminal uh, paper on, it was much more than a paper, it was a big presentation, on the U.S. competitive situation and what ought to be done about it. And that really had a major impact on the way the United States looked at its situation, mainly vis-a-vis Japan, but also much more broadly. Also, um, I would... I, go ahead. I think yeah, let me, Professor let me, let me, uh, Whitman points to a very important... Pete Peterson was instrumental in shaping the mindset right. around competitiveness. And uh, the problem is we don't really have anyone of that stature and that scope that is focusing on the whole range of issues, uh, trade, monetary, finance, and how they are actually playing together uh, to create this uncertainty and instability. Right. Uh, you, people you say, well, they don't want the big okay. think, uh, but I think somebody has to step up and do it. Matt Gold, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I was trying to get a word in edgewise here. Yeah, you know, there's a few pieces of this puzzle being left out in this conversation. Um, since the, the 70s and 80s, we, we've had this thing called the World Trade Organization, and it's not just the creation of the WTO as an organization. It's a, a dramatic expanding of obligations that WTO member countries have to one another by way of about 30 additional WTO agreements that have been added to the original General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade in the Tokyo Round and the Uruguay Round. Um, mostly, um, and in late, which were the late 70s and in the uh, mid-90s. Uh, and we've also added an enormous number of countries to the uh, World Trade Organization, to, into, which have become parties to the, all of the WTO agreements. We now have 164 countries in more than 30 agreements with a myriad of obligations among one another. And the United States doesn't have the freedom to move that it had back in those days. Uh, we can't sit around in Washington any longer and just um, unilaterally decide what we're going to do to improve our competitiveness. Um, if we didn't have all these countries in the multilateral system, and if we didn't have uh, all those countries have all those new obligations, um, we would have a lot of other problems. It, it wasn't a mistake to enter into them, but once we do, uh, we do have a lot of less freedom to move. Um, you know, I can't comment on the monetary policy. Um, it, it is entirely possible that things could be done there that aren't being done. But on the trade policy, not just trading goods, but services, investment, all the things that are governed uh, by the multilateral agreements of the WTO, we have a lot less room to move than we used to. I have to end it there. Uh, all of you, thank you very much. Uh, Matt, Marina, Michael, thank you very much for your time today. And I'm sure we'll pick this conversation up again uh, sometime down the road. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.